welcome to Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Black Light Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. Well, thank you for coming on Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I appreciate you coming on here to tell one hell of a story that you have. Uh, the world needs to hear it and understand how wrongful conviction happens any and everybody all the time across America. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Doug, who has an amazing story and an amazing fight behind his story. So, Doug, tell the audience about what you've been through. Well, First of all, hello, Sierra, and thank you for having me on your podcast. Gosh, you know, sometimes I get tired of telling this story. Back in 1986, I think my wife and I and our two young children, who were five and seven at the time, were living the American dream. And then one night, it turned from the American dream into the American nightmare. Right. Our house was broken into. I was beaten unconscious. I was hogtied with my hands and feet behind my back. It wasn't until several hours later that my son finally came downstairs, called 911 when the police arrived. They took me to the hospital emergency room to treat me, you know, check me because I'd been beaten fairly bad. Mm. And I was later notified a couple of hours later that my wife had been killed. Wow. Duh. And I don't know how to even go about saying the feelings that went through my mind at that point in time. I was reassured. I knew my son was okay because he came downstairs. I was concerned about my daughter because I didn't hear her. Nobody said anything about her, but I was reassured that both my children were doing fine and they were in the custody of my brother and his wife. And from there, I was discharged from the hospital three or four hours later. The detectives from the city I lived in asked me if I'd go back to the detective bureau and give them a statement. I did. I spent several hours with them. I gave them a, a verbal and a written statement. And then I went home to my brother's house. It wasn't until, oh, I guess four days later after a funeral. The police wanted to talk to me again. So the next morning I met with the detectives again. And this time I spent 13 and a half hours being interrogated by the police, by the two detectives assigned to the case. At this was this right after you got out of the hospital or? No, this was four days later. This was the day after my wife's, or may have been five days later, the day after my wife's funeral. That's a lot. Uh, and I spent 13 and a half hours with the detectives 
answering their questions, going over things, giving fingerprint samples and other biological samples for them to use as a comparison against what the autopsy might find. I didn't really think a whole lot about it. I'm, you know, 13 and a half hours looking back on it now. That was a long, a lot of time. I also can look back on it now to the tactics they were using to try to coerce some type of confession out of me. I was, wasn't allowed to use the bathroom. I wasn't allowed to have anything to eat or drink. And they were playing good cop, bad cop, or dumb cop, and even dumber cop with me. And it wasn't until some, like I say, 13 and a half hours later, my brother showed up at the detective bureau and wanted to know what's going on. I'm, you know, I disappeared at nine o'clock that morning. It's almost 11 o'clock at night. And I said, I don't know. They won't let me go home. They keep asking me the same questions over and over again. And all of a sudden the detective's like, oh no, no, no. We never said you couldn't go home. You know, you've always been free to leave. And I said, well, you haven't let me, you know, feel that way. Right. You know, I said, I've been here all day long, nothing to eat, nothing to drink. I'm about ready to soil myself because I need to use a restroom. And they said, no, no, no. But before you go, we just need you to sign this statement. And this detective, if I'm going into too much detail, just stop me and I won't go through all the little details. But this detective is sitting here, hunting and pecking with a couple of fingers on a typewriter, supposedly taking my statement in written form. There's also a tape recorder slash dictaphone on the table recording everything. So he hands me these stack of papers and asks me to sign it, you know, as far as my statement. And I'm glancing at the paperwork and I tell him, I said, well, you know, you've paraphrased my statement. This isn't word for word. And he assures me. Oh, it's not meant to be word for word. He said, that's why we have a tape recording. Well, lo and behold, months later, when first of all, I'm not arrested to nearly four months later, but months later, after I get an attorney to represent me, my attorney is told that there was no recording that believe it or not, in 1986, this police department, which is one of the wealthiest departments in the state of Louisiana didn't own a single tape recorder. Give me a break. They don't have a single tape recorder in a large, very well-financed police department. So the only thing they had to go on was the paraphrase written statement that I'd signed off on without being read my rights. And of course, their, their thing was, well, of course you will read your rights. You acknowledged it and you signed this as being verbatim your statement. And of course that came back to haunt me at the time of the trial, but let me move on. I realized after that day at the detective bureau that 
something was going on. Something didn't seem right. And I was advised that I need to talk to an attorney. So I did. I talked to an attorney and I hired him to represent me. At this time, you know, the attorney attempted to gather as much information as he could. He was given a copy of the written statements that I had given the police. And he told me, he said, whatever you do, don't talk to the police again. They're not your friends and they will lie and they will try to trick you into saying something you didn't mean to say. Mm -hmm. And at this point in time, I'm still locked out of my house. It's still a crime scene according to them, but they finished their investigation. A few days later, finally, the police turned over keys to my house, to my attorney, and my attorney and I went over there to um, take a look inside. I might mention that the police were so callous that I wasn't even allowed to enter the house under their supervision or even have one of her sisters enter the house under their supervision to pick an outfit for her to be buried in. Oh, wow. The police detective picked some hideous looking clothing, sort of threw it at me and said, here, bury her in this. What? Yeah. And, you know, and at that point in time, my children only had the pajamas that they left the house with the morning of the murder and they had none of their clothes. I had none of my clothes except for the clothes that my brother had given me to wear. And, you know, I'm like, seriously, what's wrong with these people? You know, they're so insensitive towards what I'm going through, what my children are going through. You don't know how hard it was to have a funeral, view the body, and it's got these clothes on it that in in no way, shape, or form would my wife have wanted to be buried in those clothes. And it was like everybody commented, seriously, who picked out those clothes? You know, why did you bury her in those, that clothing? But my attorney and I went over to the crime scene after we finally were allowed to enter the house. And I had no idea what to expect. And my house was a disaster area. You know, it's like, I didn't know what was done by the intruders. I didn't know what was done by the police. My attorney, who obviously had experience viewing these types of crime scenes, he said, oh no, he said, this couldn't have possibly be been done by whoever broke into your house and killed your wife. He said, the police did all of this. And we hired a detective and the detective hired a crime scene expert. They went over to the house and gave us their report, basically saying that nine, over 90% of the damage in the house was caused by the police. I mean, it's like the police were holding a party in there. There were soda cans, beer cans, empty pizza boxes, trash from McDonald's and Burger King, just thrown all over my house. Now, I'm sure wow. it wasn't the two men that broke into my house that night, but with no. total disregard, the police had done that. The police also, in searching my house, 
they caused roughly $15,000 worth of damage to the inside of my house. And, you know, it's like, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, that was just like, you know, another unnecessary pain to be suffering, looking at what had been done to the inside of the house. And let me ask you this, Doug, how, so you, you were also beat basically unconscious. So how, how are you able to just even function? Because I'm sure you sustained probably head injuries and everything. And then four days after, or not too long after your wife had passed, you're sitting in a police department for hours upon hours. They're not offering you anything to drink, anything to eat. And then you want to bury her to show respect. And then they're just like, well, here, you just, you know, we're going to pick out what she's going to wear because you're not allowed in the house and just give you something hideous. How did that, how did you get through that? Because that in itself is a lot. A lot. Believe me, it wasn't easy. But I think the thing that kept me going is my son and my daughter. I had a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. I couldn't be weak. I couldn't show the emotion that I was feeling because they were falling apart. I don't know how to explain it other than I love them and I couldn't show what I was feeling. I had to keep it all pulled together for the two of them. Sometimes I felt like just falling down and screaming, crying, whatever. But my children were constantly by my side at this point. And I couldn't do it for them. Yeah. And, you know, a person, would have, with a person would have to understand the love someone has for their children to know that you have to be strong for them. I mean, it was sort of strange that the police kept saying, oh, it's, he wasn't showing emotion because he didn't care. Well, obviously the policeman wouldn't have cared enough about his children. The district attorney wouldn't have cared about his, their children, you know, because any loving parent would have understood what I was going through and the fact that, yeah, I wanted to break down and cry. But how do you do that when you know every tear I shed is going to hurt my children? Right, right. So how did you process that trauma? Like, were you even able to process that? Because not only did you lose your wife, but your children lost their mom. You know, you they could have possibly lost you in the same note, which they did eventually for a while. But but how did you were you able to process that trauma? Because that little piece by itself was a lot on top of the trauma you experienced after this to be honest with you i wasn't able to process it initially i i i said once and i'll repeat myself and maybe it'll make sense to the people listening out there but i wasn't even able to mourn my wife's passing until a few days after i was set free by the federal court and I drove myself to the cemetery to visit her grave. Mm. And then I totally lost it. I fell apart. 
I stayed there for hours crying. And that was probably the first time in all of those years I was able to mourn my wife's passing and release my emotions. Because up until that point, I had to be strong. If I was going to survive, I couldn't fall apart. Right. So let's, so tell us how, what, what happened after that? Because you also faced, you know, a lot of stuff after your wife's passing. Well, they arrested me nearly four months later. At this point in time, I'm talking to my attorney fairly regularly. And he tells me that don't be surprised if they don't arrest me and charge me with murder. And I'm like, why is that? And he said, he said, well, I'm going to tell you. He said, it might be hard for you to imagine. He said, but you've pissed them off. You've had the audacity to criticize the chief of police for running a Keystone cop type of operation. You've criticized the two detectives for not being able to add two and two and get four. Uh, and you're demanding that they all be terminated from their jobs uh, because of their incompetence. They're not going to give up their jobs without fighting back. And the way they fight back is really dirty. And they proved it when they arrested me. And I asked the detective why he was doing this to me and my children. And if I can use a little profanity, uh, this is almost the exact conversation I had with the lead detective the morning he arrested me and at least someone else had the decency to allow me to go upstairs in my house and dress my children who were originally in pajamas. And I turned to him as I was dressing my children. And I said, why are you doing this to me? Why, especially why are you doing this to my children? Don't you think we've been going through enough? And he looked at me and he had it, that look that if looks could kill, I'd have dropped dead on the spot. And he's close enough that I can feel the spittle coming out of his mouth. And he says, fuck you, fuck your dead wife, fuck your children. You wanted somebody arrested. I couldn't find the people who are responsible for this, but I've spent the past three months framing you, and I've done a good job of it. You're going to be convicted. Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. And I'm wow. like, I didn't know what to say or do at that point in time. What is there to say or do? Like, I mean, I, I, I mean, what do you want me to do? Hit him and then I'll be in more trouble all apart. Again, my children are right there next to me at the time. To this day, my son sort of remembers me arguing with the detective and remembers the detective cursing. Doesn't really remember what was said. So they arrested me. They take me to the local police station. And of course, they do the perp walk. They've orchestrated this, so there are dozens and dozens of cameras in every TV station in the world watching them um, walk me handcuffed 
you know, into the police station. And then the chief of police gives this big talk about how fantastic he and his detectives are that they've solved this hideous murder. And I was the one that was guilty the whole time. And I'll just say this at one point in time, and they're waiting to take me from in Louisiana, we have parishes instead of counties. It's a little bit different, but parish is essentially a county. Mm-hmm. So they're waiting to take me from the local jail to the parish jail. And the chief of police comes back to the cell I'm being held in. He's got the detective with him and a couple of other police officers, plus the couple of them. So they might have been half dozen police officers, plus the chief of police. And he, he just sort of standing outside this cell and he says, you should have never fucked with me. He said, you know, he said, I've been a police officer for a long time. And he said, you know how I got where I am today? Never trust an honest cop. Let that sink in. Never trust an honest cop. And then he turns around and says, I can trust everybody here, can I? And they all, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You can trust us. So what they did is essentially everybody there admitted they were uh, weren't honest um, cops. That they were dirty. Yeah. So I'm arrested. The detective is driving me later to the parish jail. I'm in the backseat handcuffed. And he's taught me the whole way there about how I'll be, you know, locked up until I'm an old man and die. And, you know, laughing about the fact that he framed me and what a good job he did. And, you know, mm. so, and, and, he, and then he's telling me, he said, he said, oh, and, you know, they set a high bond, you know, you won't even get out, um, you know, before you trial. Well, I was out on bond first thing the next morning. And one of the things that was really hurtful at that point in time, when they arrested me, they took my children into uh, state custody. And I pleaded with them, please let a member of my family, a member of my wife's family, Take Get the children. children. There is no reason to have them spend the night wherever state facility you were going to bring them to. And the detective was insistent. He said, No. He said, I know one way to hurt you, and that's to hurt your children. And oh, that's why. That oh, this guy was evil incarnate. Absolute. So make a long story short from that point on, it would be about seven months before my trial. And oh, let me just say this, that the state tried to prevent me from regaining custody of my children. But, you know, before the end of the day, the day I was released on bond, I, I'd had my children back in my custody but not because they didn't try to stop me. So I I go to trial 
roughly seven months later. And it's a nine-day trial, which maybe for some people, they don't think nine days is long for a second-degree murder trial. I'd say the average second-degree murder trial in Louisiana is two to three days of that long. That's scary, too. Yeah. I mean, some of them last a matter of hours. Mm. They're, they're actually second-degree murder trials that last start to finish less than three hours. Oh, something ain't right about that. No. No matter how guilty a person is, that's not right. Mm-mm. But it's Louisiana. That's not enough to get, to get evidence across to anybody. And during the trial... All the um, district attorney has to offer is a theory. He has no hard evidence. The husband's alive. The wife's dead. This is 1987 now that we're in trial. And he says, there was a quarter of a million dollar life insurance policy. Well, if you say it fast, that sounds like a lot of money. But is a quarter of a million dollars enough money? that I can raise two children, send them to school, cows them, feed them, uh, and take care of their needs. That's nothing. No. At no point in time during the trial were they, were they able to put a single person on the stand, not a member of my wife's family, no friend, no acquaintance that said we had a bad marriage or other than the casual argument that all married couples have, there were never any words even between us. And they, that was basically the case against me. You know. So what did they do with the evidence that proved somebody broke into your house? Because I know they saw that. They, they hid that. They, you know, Almost everybody from the state, as far as police officers, forensic experts, coroners, paramedics, they all committed perjury. They all told the exact opposite of what really transpired during their testimony. You know, at one time, their biggest piece of evidence that they laid claim to was some duct tape had been applied to a window and it was broken to gain entry to my house. Now, somewhere they found a piece of cellophane that maybe it was, maybe it wasn't from the cellophane wrapping of the duct tape had a partial fingerprint from me on it. There's no chain of custody. They don't say where the cellophane came from. Just one little small piece of cellophane with my fingerprint on it. And they jumped to the, you know, absolute conclusion that it came from the duct tape wrapping. Therefore he's guilty. But do we actually know if that was actually your fingerprint? Cause if they committed all of that I, perjury, I, I doubt seriously if it was really my fingerprint. No. I mean, who's to believe the fingerprint expert that we now know absolutely committed perjury during trial. There, there was one thing that sort of, I don't understand how the jury processed their thoughts. Now, first of all, back then in Louisiana, 
you could convict a person, send them to prison for life on a non-unanimous jury of only 10 to 2. Hard to imagine you're going to send a person to prison when two people believe they're innocent. Well, isn't that in itself reasonable doubt? But one of the, let me just back up and then I'll, I'll go ahead. One of the things was there's no debate whatsoever that when I was beaten, first of all, I was found with my hands and feet tied behind my back, hog tied. Right. So how would you kill your wife and then beat yourself to death and then hog tie yourself and hands and feet? They had a contortionist that could have been a um, circus performer show how he tied himself up and put his hands behind his back. But the one thing they couldn't ever explain, and I thought my attorney did a great job of this. I had a bruised, the shape of a shoe in the middle of my back where somebody stalked me so hard mm. that it left a very clear impression of the shoe. You could determine the size and the type of sole that was on the shoe. It was a larger shoe than I wear. There were no shoes of that type found in my home. So where did this, how did, first of all, if I did it myself, how did I stomp myself in the middle of the back? back right. And even the state's experts were like, I don't know. Have no explanation for it. You know, obviously when he did everything else, he somehow did this. Somehow did that. The jury goes out for deliberations after final arguments. And from what I was told, based on an investigator that talked to some of the jury members afterwards, the jury was out for a considerable amount of time and it was getting very late at night. And they'd taken a number of votes during the day and they didn't have anywhere near a number enough votes, even at only needing 10 to convict me. When the bailiff goes into the jury room and says, the judge says, if you can't come up with a, a vote in the next 15 minutes, y'all are going to be back here again tomorrow. Well, all of a sudden, everybody who had been adamant about me not being guilty, all except for one, changed their vote in an instant so they could go home. I think a lot of people are convicted off of sequestration because, I mean, you got to think about it. these are regular human beings and they're already sitting in, in a, you know, in a jury, they're sitting in a trial. And then when you tell them, okay, we're going to sequester you, which if, you know, audience, if you don't know what sequester means, that means they take your phone, they put you in a room, you can't watch TV, you can't call anybody. And so most people will just give a guilty verdict or also go off of the judge's instructions, jury instructions. That's when a lot of people just say, okay, well, guilty because I don't want to be sequestered. I don't want to go to a, a hotel room and can't talk to anybody or watch TV. Yeah, most of the jurors in my case were young adults, some as young as 18 and 19. All you have to do is be 18 voting age to get on a jury. 
a couple of people were maybe in their 30s, one in their 40s, and there was one older man that might have been in his late 50s or so. Now, I mean, the older man during the voir dire, he was asked, did he know the defendant? And he was semi-honest in that he said, I'm pretty sure that many years back, like 12 years earlier, he'd worked for the same company that I work for. Now, my, my attorney, you know, turns to me and says, do you remember working with him? And I'm like, I have no idea. We had 3000 people working for that company and he was one of 3000. How, how would I remember him from 12 years ago? So anyway, he gets picked to be on the jury. He also gets elected jury foreman. And again, from what I'm told, he was the one that just argued to, he was blue in the face. We're going to bring back a guilty verdict. I'll keep us here forever, but I'm not voting not guilty. And he browbeat all of these little young kids, you know, who see their father or grandfather, you know, arguing with them, you know, you have to um, go my way or else. Well, again, I learned after the fact I'm already convicted and I'm, I'm convicted of second degree murder sitting in a jail cell when I find out. That yes, indeed, we did work together 12 years ago. And as a matter of fact, I personally fired this person for misconduct. So he was basically getting back at you. Oh, he had uh, been bearing a grudge against me for all of those years. And being foreman of my jury was his opportunity to get even with me as he saw it. Raised that on direct appeal, but it was like, Everything I raised on direct appeal is like meaningless. We had this overwhelming circumstantial evidence and a theory that was just, oh, the theory was so good. But it's like, where's the evidence? Circumstantial evidence and a theory. And they want to send me to prison for life. And believe it or not, a lot of people are convicted off of the state's theory. A theory is just what it is. That's just like if you have an idea about something. That's what they, that's what they have. They have an idea because they're not there. So they come up with this idea and they push it to the jury, to the media. They push that. And so that's how you basically coerce people into thinking somebody's guilty instead of showing them the true evidence. And that's another thing I don't like is people are convicted off of circumstantial evidence because circumstantial is not beyond a reasonable doubt. And they always say to find somebody guilty, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, that contradicts using circumstantial evidence. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. And the other thing you have to take into consideration, let me speak first about the pettit jury at a trial where everybody that goes in there, or I don't want to use everybody, the majority of people are of the mindset, they wouldn't be, have been arrested and be sitting here on trial if they weren't guilty, they're so naive. It's like the police and the district attorney wouldn't try to frame an innocent person, you know, so they're already, you know, this thing of fallacy about a person is innocent until proven guilty. That's a total fallacy. 
The absolute truth in the United States is you are guilty unless you can prove yourself innocent beyond a reasonable doubt. And it takes a lifetime sometimes to prove that you're innocent. You know, and, you know, it's like, first of all, anybody that's ever, you know, discussed philosophy or whatever, how do you prove a negative? It can't be proven. So if I didn't do something, how do I prove I didn't do it? Do it. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing is, we have this grand jury system. Oh, I hate that. And what exactly is a grand jury? It's to a me, it is, it is a secretive way of them lying to a bunch of people for them to indict you because you have no legal representation. Your lawyer is not allowed to be in the grand jury to see what evidence they supposedly have to bring the indictment against you. And that is so unfair. Well, exactly. My attorney isn't allowed to be there. He's not allowed to present any evidence. I'm not allowed to be there, give my side of the story. And the district attorney who's present, no one questions what he says. And it usually ends, the grand jury usually ends with a statement similar to, ladies and gentlemen, want to thank you for being here. We've done our part. We've caught the guilty person. We want to bring them to um, trial. We want to um, have justice for the murder victim. What we need is your cooperation and your help. We need you to bring back an indictment so that we can punish the person that murdered this woman. You know, so they're conning that individual. There's also, there's no checks and balances because the grand jury transcript is secret. Sealed. You're yeah. not, mm -hmm. you're not entitled to receive a copy of that. And I don't know if this is an accurate quote or not, but I'm told that Adolf Hitler once said he loves the way the Americans use a grand jury and that he patterned his SS and the way they interrogate people after America's grand juries. I can believe it. I think Idaho was the only one that releases grand jury information. Any other state, the you don't know who the grand jurors are. You don't see the transcript of what was said. It is secret. It is secret, secretly secretive. And it's only for the DA to know. And that is not right because I feel like how is that equal injustice when you you can you can present anything that you want to a bunch of people who don't know what's going on and you have no way to present your own evidence to prove hey you shouldn't indict me on this this cuz i didn't do it there's here's the evidence but yeah well, grand juries i think I just it. about most adults have heard the name F Lee Bailey as far as a famous trial attorney mm -hmm. okay F. Lee Bailey, I want to say that this might have been the 60s or early 70s. He tried the case in New Orleans. And during his opening comments, or maybe it was his closing comments, he said, don't let the fact that this person was indicted by a grand jury fool you. He said, this is Louisiana. 
I promise you, using the same veracity that the district attorney used, I could indict a roast beef po' boy of the murder of an oyster po' boy. And he said, give me 12 people and give me two or three days to argue. And I promise you, I'll bring back that indictment. Mm -hmm. He said, that's about how substantial and truthful an indictment is in Louisiana and probably throughout the majority of the states. I mean, just think about why are they hiding what transpired during a grand jury? They're hiding it because God knows how much exculpatory evidence may have come out. And you had Brady violations out the wazoo. Now, let's move on. I'm in prison for the better part of seven years. I'm working in the law library as an inmate counsel, inmate lawyer, whatever you want to call it. And it just so happens that in Louisiana's infinite wisdom and their legislature, they're passing a new law that makes it impossible for a convicted felon to make a request for public records. Even if you pay for the copying and everything, we're not allowed to get public records. And I'm like, so... At this point in time, I'm going to be honest with you. Seven years I spent incarcerated. And I honestly, I knew the police were corrupt. But I honestly believed that I had a fair trial. I honestly believed everybody at the trial told the truth. I thought I was just one of these casualties of the criminal justice system where something went wrong. Right. Well, before the deadline for filing a public records request expired, I filed a um, public records request. I got a stack of papers, oh, maybe 18 inches tall from the district attorney's office. And I'm not going to go into a story that could keep us here all day and night, but I locked them away in a file cabinet in the law library. And a while after I got them, I finally decided, okay, I'm going to go through all of this because I need that draw in the file cabinet. And I'm just going to throw all this stuff out after I've gone through, through it. it. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting here one morning, early in the morning, and... I'm going through everything. There's one other person, a friend of mine in the law library. We're talking early in the morning. We didn't, we had the ability because of our job assignment that we could go into work as soon as they called you out for breakfast at like five o'clock in the morning. morning. Mm -hmm. So rather than go back to the dormitory, go, go sit in the law library, drink coffee. And I'm sitting here and I'm going through things and, you know, I'm about three quarters of the way through the stack of papers and I'm throwing them all in the garbage because it's nothing. And then I come across something that's entitled supplemental police report. So I'm like, Oh, this sounds interesting. And I start turning through the pages of it. And I think I didn't get any further than the third page. And all of a sudden, my friend, Mike, who worked in the law library with me, 
he grabs me by the shoulder and he's shaking me. He's like, so you okay? You okay? And I'm like, what? What? And he says, man, he says, I thought maybe you were having a heart attack or a stroke. He said, you turn, you turn pale, you're cold and clammy and you just sit in there expressionless. And I'm like, Mike, it's here. This entire document is the game plan they had to suppress all the favorable evidence and frame me. This detective was so stupid that he had two files. He had the original file that contained the truth, and he had another file that they used to convict me, hiding the truth. And it was all there. I actually got part of my grand jury transcripts, which I absolutely shouldn't have had. And that proved that the fingerprint expert committed perjury at trial because before the grand jury, he's like, oh yeah, we have fingerprints here and we have fingerprints there. And I don't know who they belong to because I don't have anything to compare them to, but they didn't mm. belong to Mr. Delosa. They didn't belong to his wife. They didn't belong to the children or any member of his family or friends who had been there in week. So he testifies to that before a grand jury, but at trial, he's like, there were no fingerprints found anywhere that didn't belong to the Delosa family. You know, that would, that in itself was very powerful. Yeah. There, I'm not going to bother going over everything that was found in the supplemental police report, but it was at least six different items that any one of these items that I found in that supplemental police report in and of itself, in my opinion, would have warranted a new trial and overturn of my conviction. And, and you had to go all the way to the federal court. I spent, I spent the next uh, six plus years going from one state court to another, to another, to another, starting over again, trying a new um, way. And I think I went through all the state, three state courts. I think I went through all of them at least four times. And every time I got a thumb, answer from the courts, whether it was the local court, the appellate court, or the state Supreme Court, and they, they all had this wonderful reply, due to the overwhelming circumstantial evidence and theory presented at trial, we're going to ignore this factual evidence of innocence, and we deny you claim for a new trial. And I, every time I got one of those, I'm like, seriously, how corrupt can you be to say that you're going to ignore factual evidence and stick with the state's theory and circumstantial yeah. non-evidence. And it shows how many people, especially the lead detective, a number of police officers, the coroner. The crime lab expert, the paramedic, they all committed perjury. It was there in black and white. And none of that counted. None of that 
was favorable to me? Corruption, corruption, corruption. And finally, I'd, I'd go on all the way. And at this point in time, I'd been represented by a paid attorney the entire time. I hurts me to even say how much money, but I'd spent hundreds of thousands of dollars paying attorneys to refuse to do what I asked them to do. So I found when I got to the point where I figured I had one more shot and that was in federal court. So I said, okay, I'm fairly well-educated. I've been working in the law library for over 10 years. I'm just not going to pay somebody $50,000 to file to do nothing to file a, you know, federal habeas. I said, especially this time I'm going to file it myself. And excuse me. <laughs> we got a, a guest. Yeah. He like, he thinks he's a lap dog. It's 75 <laughs> pounds. So I, I had a year from that last denial in state court to file my federal habeas. So I'm like, okay, I've got everything in front of me. I'm going to spend, I spent like six months researching law as much as possible. I wrote, rewrote my brief a number of times. I put it away for a month, came back to it for a fresh look. I had a couple of people that I worked with in the law library critique it. And when I was about two months away from my one year deadline, I'm like, this is it. I'm going to put it in the envelope send it off registered mail to prove that I filed it and I filed it and I waited and I waited and I'm like, oh gosh, you know, we had a special thing they called mail call for legal mail mm -hmm. and you know, the sergeant in the dormitory would say, you have legal mail, go get it after breakfast. And you know, over the course of a year, I got a few pieces of legal mail from one attorney or another. And every time I got called, my heart would go up in my throat and I'm like, then finally, you know, it's, I don't think there was a deadline that they had to respond, but it was close to 12 months from the day I originally filed. And get the call for legal mail after breakfast. So I'm like, okay, I went and ate breakfast. I went and got my legal mail and sure enough, it's from the federal court. And I'm, I'm terrified. I'm afraid to open it. So I went back to the law library, locked it in my file cabinet. And I just sat there drinking a cup of coffee. I'm like, I'm afraid to open it because I know been denied so many times. I know at this point in time, the, there had never been a pro se federal habeas granted in Louisiana. Wow. Never. So, I mean, what were the chances and the judge yeah, none. <laughs> and the, the magistrate judge who had my case, 
I don't think he had ever granted one even presented by an attorney in his um, career on the, um, that. So I'm just sitting there and I, I don't, I'm nervous, I'm perspiring. And so sure enough, my friend, Mike, he and I, you know, he's the only other one that gets up that early and goes in there and he says, what you doing here this early? And I said, I got it. And he said, you did? He said, what's it say? I said, I'm afraid to look. And he said, man, he said, don't make me slap you. He said, get that envelope out of the file cabinet and let's take a look. And it's not like I needed somebody to give me the courage. Right. And opened up the file cabinet. I took the envelope out and I'm like, he, he's trying to grab it. I said, no, come on, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> so I, I open it up and I'm holding it. And I don't know, 25, 30 pages long. And anybody that's ever looked at one, they know you don't read it. You turn to the last page and the last page is going to tell you whether it was denied or granted. So I flipped it to the last page. And again, I sat there in shock and I, I had tears rolling down my face and Mike grabbed it out of my hand and he said, oh, he said, can't believe it either. They granted it. They reversed your conviction. And that was the first time I had cried since my wife's funeral. Even when I was notified, my mom and dad had died while I was incarcerated. I didn't shed a tear. You know, mm. but right. I started to cry almost like a baby. I was just so happy. I was overwhelmed. I, I couldn't stop crying. And all of those years, cl uh, close to 14 years, you know, one denial after another. Uh, and it wasn't just that it was approved. It was language that the magistrate judge used, essentially condemning the state courts for their inaction on the appeals that I had filed with them. And at this point in time, I had little to no money left, but my children were coming up to visit me in a couple of days. So I think I'm going to share this good news with them. And at this point in time, you got to stop and think, okay, my children were five and seven. Now they're 19 and 21, almost 22. So mm. they're young adults. They're not babies anymore. And when they came to visit, you know, I had to pay copies of the paperwork to show them. They were so happy. I mean, they, my children had always believed in me and I won't even get into why, but they had seen the people who killed them up, but they didn't see that what actually happened, but, but they seen people. Yeah. And as we talk, it's like, what comes next? And I'm like, well, the state of Louisiana is going to appeal the decision. And I said, I don't know what to do because. Chances are probably 50-50 that the state will win its appeal. I said, if I just have to rely on, you know, me filing a brief and the state 
following theirs, it's going to be hard to win. And, and they said, well, why don't you, I said, I just don't have the money for an attorney anymore. Right. And, you know, I can see my son bends over and whispers in my daughter's ear, takes maybe 10, 15 seconds. And they say, don't worry about money. We're going to sell the house. We still had our family home and it was, they had a few hundred thousand dollars equity in it or a couple of hundred thousand. And they said, you just hire an attorney and we'll worry about painting. And I couldn't believe that these children who I loved more than life itself were willing to become homeless, which they did in order to raise the money to help me fight the state this last few battles. So they sold the house. I doubt if they got 60 cents on the dollar when they sold the house, but they sold it in a hurry to raise money and hired an attorney. And, oh, God, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but the attorney came up to see me in the penitentiary and he said, well, I, I read your case and he said, believe me, there's no way the state's going to win this on appeal. He said, I'm not going to let them win it on appeal. And this guy had a reputation at being maybe the best criminal defense attorney in the Southwest. You know, it's, you know, he's the kind of person that the ex-governor of Louisiana had represent him that judges and prominent businessmen hired for ridiculous amounts of money so that he would represent them. Yeah. Uh, and he says, well, you know, just sign the paper here saying that you're, you're hiring me. I've spoken to your children and I'm not worried about being paid. And he said, I'm going to get back to you. I just need to do a few things. So he calls me on the phone, maybe a week later. And he said, okay, he said, I've had a chance to go over everything. I've even talked to the judge. And at this point in time, it's late September in 2000. And he tells me, he said, how would you like to be home for Christmas? And I'm like, come on, man. I, I said, I can't stand any more false hope. Right. And, he, and, you know. And he says, no, he says, I'm, I'm being serious. He said, I've already, um, talked. the judge is going to grant you bond. It's just a question of scheduling you on the calendar, bringing you in the court and he's going to release you from the courthouse. And I'm finding it hard to believe this. And he says, there's only one catch to it. And he says, you have to have somebody show up at the courthouse. And he says, if necessary, I'll make sure it's me has to bring you a change of clothes. Cause you can't leave the courthouse in an orange jumpsuit. So he calls me up about two weeks later and he said, man, he said, you're going to want to um, kill me. He said, but my promise to you for having you home for Christmas, he said, it's not going to happen. And I'm like, I don't know that I was even surprised that he said that. Uh, you know, I was surprised that there was even a possibility of it. And 
he explains, and at this point in time, I hadn't told anybody about um, me going back court and being granted bond. And and he said, but look, he said, all this is is there's no way I could get you on anybody's docket before the holidays. It's just that after Thanksgiving, everything pretty much shuts down. Right. He said, how does coming home on January 8th sound to you? And I said, it's just, just, and he said, no, he said, I guarantee you January 8th. So at this point in time, the only, I didn't tell my children because I wasn't about ready to give them false hope. Yeah. I told my brother, my brother was like, he didn't believe it. He called the attorney, the attorney assured him. So he's like, well, I'm going to be there. I'll have his change of clothes for him. And sure enough, January 8th, everybody in the penitentiary thinks I'm, I haven't told anybody about this. It's like, you know, my friend Mike and a few others knew that I had, my case was overturned and my conviction was thrown out, but nobody knew that I had this court date and I was going home. So like the day before called a few of my closest friends together. And I said, look, I'm going home tomorrow. And they all like, oh man, this guy needs some psychiatric help. And, and I said, no, really, I'm, I've got, I'm going on court and judge is going to release me. Nobody believed me. I all think, you know, this guy's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm, I'm giving away all of my um, possessions. I had already mailed anything home that I felt I needed. But since I was going to court in a jumpsuit, I left every, except for the shoes on my feet, I left everything that I own behind. And I even had the deputy warden who was on duty that morning, you know, tell me just another person that's lost his mind and you know, he says, I'll see you when you come back. Bet he felt stupid. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to tell you. I, I went to court and to make a really long story short, when it finally came ta time to call me, the judge released me on my own recognizance from a life sentence doing mandatory life in prison to being free. That's how strongly he felt I was innocent. That is amazing, Doug. I, your story is, is very breathtaking. There's a lot of times I had to hold back tears because that, that's a lot for one man to go through. That's a lot and, for children to go through. And the only problem is it doesn't really end there. It continues for another two years. After the state was denied their first appeal, they had, they filed another appeal to the Fifth Circuit Federal. Federal Court of Appeals. And that would involve oral arguments before a three-judge panel. That itself, I mean, I spent every night, if I heard a corridor, I was staying at my brother's apartment. If I heard a corridor slam in the parking lot, I'd wake up in a cold sweat, and I'm like, it's the police coming to take me back. Mm -hmm. Finally, after the better part of a year, I get a unanimous decision from the three-judge panel 
saying that no, the state's appeal is denied. We agree with the lower court's ruling that this man's conviction is overturned. But it's not over yet. The state now has a year from that date to bring me back to trial. And they say they're going to bring me back to trial. Can't believe this is just still going on. And as the months go by, I'm bothering the heck out of the attorney. I didn't even have money to pay the attorney at this point in time. You know, everything that we got from selling the house went for him to represent me on the direct appeal and then the court of appeals, you know, personal mm -hmm. appearance and argument before the judges. But he told me, he said, look, he said, at this point in time, I'm all in. He said, I'm going to represent you until you're free. So I keep, you know, just bothering him and I'm sick to my stomach with nervous tension. And after about eight of the 12 months go by, it's like, it looks like they're going to bring you back to trial. He said, I know they're, they're seriously thinking about it. And I'm like, what do I do? Well, I'm going to tell you this. It's not a, something I've told many times in the past, even publicly. So it's not a secret. I want to say that when there was about 11 months had passed and they had that they were supposedly trying to schedule a date for my retrial. And I'm thinking, I'm talking at this point in time, the internet's a heck of a thing. Never experienced that before and work for an international marine construction engineering company. And I worked overseas for a number of years. So I'd rekindled some friendships with people I hadn't seen in nearly 20 years. And one of the people I had talked to was living in Brazil. Another person I talked to was a Chinese national. And they both said, don't go back to trial. Get here and you'll never have to go back to the United States. Wow. And I'm like, can't do that. Right. You know, but as it got closer, I finally, I made a decision. I'm going to take my friend in China's offer because I know there's no extradition. And the thing that, that was curious, and my story's about to come to an end, I guess, I didn't have a passport, much less a visa for China. So, right. I'm, so I'm like, well, is my name like on a list? And when I apply for a passport, federal marshals are going to come scoop me up. I didn't know. You know, technically, it's like I had never been arrested even. So, right. This is your first time really handling this type of situation yeah. at all, right? So I go online. Oh, oh God, the internet's wonderful. And yeah. I find a place where I can apply for a passport and a visa. This one company will handle it all. I just, you know, use my debit card. And they said, like, okay, 48 hours, you'll have your passport with a um, valid China visa in it. So I get an email back saying, 
passport with the visas coming in, Federal Express, you'll have it before 1030 in the morning. And the next morning, I can't even sleep. So the next <laughs> morning, uh, somebody's knocking on my door. And I'm like, I just knew it was the federal marshals coming to arrest me. Coming and when I got there, the Fed, FedEx man's like, I need you to sign here. I get the envelope that has my passport in it. And with that in hand, I go back to the internet and I buy ticket to China. And I didn't really know. I knew that if I did this, chances are I'd never come back to the United States. I'd probably never see my children again, but I wasn't going back to prison. No matter what, I wasn't going back to prison. So once I made my travel arrangements, talked to my friend in China, called my son. I told him to come over and talk to me. I gave him a phone number. And I said, look, don't ask me any questions. I don't want, it's best that you be able to legitimately say you don't know. I said, this phone number will work once and only once. I said, after the first time you call it, it'll never work again. I'm going to destroy the phone or the SIM card anyway. And, and I said, no, I, I'm not talking about it. I said, just. So I'm in China and my instructions to my son was when something's published in the paper or you hear from my attorney, my attorney didn't even know. I said, you can call me on that phone number and tell me, I don't remember how long it gone by six, seven weeks. And it's two 30 in the morning in China. I answer the phone. My son's like, Dad, I don't know where you are, what's going on. He said, but please come home. It's on the front page of the local newspaper. All charges have been dropped and there will be no retrial. Two days later, I was back in the United States. And for the most part, that ends the story. But of course, it doesn't end there because there's so many trials and tribulations trying to put your life back together once you do come home. And you're, even if you're fully exonerated, it's not as easy as some people may think. Yeah. You want to, did you want to talk about that or? You know, I'm willing to talk about anything you want to listen to. I mean, your story's amazing. I mean, yeah, let us know how, how it was. It was difficult. I'd already been home two years. I had held every menial nasty job there was paying minimum wage to keep a roof over my head and food in my stomach. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well maybe now I can get a real job. No, no such thing. They don't care how well educated you are. They don't care how fantastic your experience is. I don't know how many countless hundreds of resumes or applications I filled out. Never got a response, or I want to take that back. I did get a couple of responses, but imagine going to an interview and the person interviewing you says, 
I notice there's a 14 year gap in your employment history. So, you know, and this is, you know, let's take for granted the person doesn't know anything about. Right. And, you know, you, you tell, tell them, well, look at it this way. I was in prison for 14 years for murdering my wife, but don't worry about it. I was actually innocent. How many people do you think are still interested in you as an employee at that point in time? Not many, if any. No, none. I actually had one interview that was set up by a close friend of mine. And it would have been a nice job. I went on the interview and it was a very positive interview. And I honestly thought I was going to get hired. And this person owned the business, so it was his decision to make. He called me up and asked me to come back in. And I'm like, oh, this sounds really good, you know? And I went in and I had actually met this guy a bunch, a bunch of years ago. I knew him through my friend. And he said, Doug, he said, I feel really bad, but I can't offer you the job. And he said, I want, just want you to hopefully understand that the reason I can't offer you this job is he said, I'd love to hire you. You would be perfect for the position. And I have no doubt in my mind that you would contribute immensely to the company. He said, but I have to think about other employees that have been here some over 10 years. And I've got a lot of women that work in the office and would be working with you. And I just set out, and he said, imagine them knowing that you were in one of the bloodiest penitentiaries in the um, country for murder, for murder of another woman, your wife. And he said, it wouldn't be fair to these people to put them under the stress of working with you and actually being afraid to work with you. And I honestly understood where he was coming from. You know, that he said, if it would have just been him, if it would have just been a bunch of guys and I'd have been working a construction site or something, he wouldn't have cared about anybody else's opinion. But he did have a lot of young women who had been with him a number of years. And... He knew they wouldn't be comfortable. So he didn't hire. Eventually, I'd say for my, for the better part of seven years, I didn't have a real job at all. I just kept applying for one thing after another. I think I got maybe found a few jobs that were paying a dollar better than minimum wage. And it was just barely enough to survive. Then at some point in time, I won't name the company, but I got a job at a big, uh, building supply company. And it's like, oh, wow, they, they're paying me 1250 an hour to start. That's almost double what I've been making. Right. 
And it's not really what I want to do, but it's something I know how to do. So I went to work for them. I managed to, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, I actually have money left over for a hamburger every now and then I can trade in this old beat up car that I didn't know whether or not it would ever start on something else. And I even managed at that point in time to buy a pickup truck and some tools. And on the days when I wasn't working, I had a pretty good background in home construction and remodeling. I used to be a general contractor. And I started doing some remodeling work in addition to the working at this other company. And my life started to really come together. I think after about another close to six years, I ran across the person that I work for now. And he, I don't know why he took a liking to me, but I'm glad he did. Well, you have an amazing story and you are a fighter and you're a warrior and you're a survivor. <laughs> so yeah, I see why. And you have and a big story. He offered me a job, essentially reaching out to other exonerated men and women who were struggling. And through his financial support and grants that he helped get from other people that could afford to give grants. Uh, we started off small, helping people put their lives back together. And I've been doing that for the better part of 10 years now. Uh, and it's very meaningful. It's very fulfilling to find somebody who's at a point in their life where after 10, 20, 30, even 40 years of wrongful incarceration, all of a sudden they're exonerated. They're not guilty of anything, but they don't know which way to turn Their The state exonerates you, but what do you go? Where do you go from there? If you're actually a convicted felon and they release you on parole or on pardon, there's a government official there to help you find work, to help you find housing. But if you're exonerated, there's nothing. They just sort of, hey, you're free, go. Right, right. So there's no direction. That's, that's sort of how my work is now, is I work with these people and do my best to help them put their Get lives together to where they can be self-sustaining and they don't have to worry about having a roof over their head or food in their stomach. Right. Right. And that's amazing. That's even more amazing that you got out and you still served other people and was able to serve, help serve other people, even though you experienced so much trauma from day one and it lasted over 20, 30, 40 years and that you're still here standing. I mean, honestly, I don't, a lot of people probably couldn't have been through what you've been through and still be here. Like a lot of people probably would have committed suicide while in prison and not, not fight for their freedom, especially after getting denial after denial after denial. You know, Danielle had told me about your story or told me that you had a very amazing story and she was right. It is, I've never, I've heard a lot of exonerations and a lot of wrongful conviction stories, 
but not to the extent of yours. And to see how resilient you are and how you're still fighting for others is amazing. Like I said, I had to fight back tears through a lot of your story because I just don't understand how one man can can take all of that and still keep get up and fighting every day, even with children. Like sometimes that's not enough for people to keep fighting. But Doug, you you're an amazing being. I'm telling you. Thank you, Sierra. And like I said, to be honest with you, I owe my ability to be resilient initially to my children, because to be honest with you. When I opened up that envelope that morning from the federal court, I had all intention of, if I was denied of committing suicide, I actually had a stash of enough heroin and a needle to make sure that I just went to, to sleep smiling and never woke up again and never used drugs, but I, I'm sure I could have figured out how to OD. And my, my theory there, you know, it might seem like a coward's way out and in a way it is, but I thought to myself, I watched my children grow up, coming to visit me twice a month. They were now at the point where they have lives outside of visiting me. And I didn't think it was fair to them to have to turn down invitations to do things with their friends or put their lives on hold for somebody who would probably never come home from prison. So I don't know, maybe I'm totally wrong and I'm sure I am, but I thought in the long run, maybe not initially, but in the long run, it would have been in the best interest of my children for me just to not be there anymore. And well, there was other plans in store for you, Doug. And, you know, and thankfully, and I also want to say that when I first came home, again, it was my children that gave me the strength. You know, I couldn't find a decent job. I didn't have this. I didn't have that. But I had two children that showed me more love than I probably deserve. They gave me strength that I didn't know that I had. And I want to say that also 14 years ago, I met an amazing woman who's now my wife. Matter of fact, on the 28th, we'll be married 13 years. And congratulations. she has helped me through a lot of dark moments and gives me another strength that I didn't know that I had because I have somebody else to live for now. Well, Doug, thank you. That was such an amazing, amazing story. And thank you for sharing that with our audience. I think that that your story was something that everybody needs to hear to understand that the whole system can be corrupt. And that once you get caught up in that corrupt system, it is very, very hard to prove your innocence and get free, but you are able to do it with just determination, the strength from your children and knowing that, you know, they had already lost one parent, they couldn't lose another one. So thank you so much. for and, your you story. Know, I, I'd just like to say one thing. And before any of this happened to me, I was extremely conservative. 
Somebody used to tell me that I made George Bush look like a flaming liberal. But over the years, I've changed. And when all of this happened to me, first of all, I'm a white man. In case your audience can't figure that out from my voice. <laughs> but I was not only white, but I was semi-affluent. I had enough money to waste $387,000 on legal fees that I never got back a penny. And, you know, a lot of people think that it can't happen to them. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. more minorities are wronged by the criminal justice system than people like me. But I've had an opportunity at times in the past to talk to organizations, schools, whatever, in person. And I think one of the reasons that the man that backs me the most now does is because he said that when he first heard me talk and he saw me, had to step back a moment and say, wow, this is the first time anybody's ever stood before me and I'm saying to myself, that could have been me. And all the people that think that it only happens to poor minorities from the ghetto, no. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how well-educated you are. It can happen to you because the criminal justice system is definitely broken in this country. It is. It's beyond broken. I don't even think broken is a word for it right now. And I'm seeing, you know, I've been in a room where lawyers and judges of the same kind have now been involved in the criminal justice system. So, no, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, poor, rich. If they want you, they're going to get you. And that's just what it is. Absolutely. And I think that's an important thing for your listeners to understand. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, absolutely minorities are wronged many, many times more than others. But to say that it never happens to somebody with money, to say it never happens to a white man, no, it does. It does. And it should scare those people out there who think it could never happen to them. Because in 1987, I never thought it could happen to me. Right. And that's why we all have to band together to change the system that is attacking, attacking people and taking them away from their families and warehousing them in prison. So thank you, Doug. I hope to have you come back on our show because you're just so amazing and wonderful. Just to kind of speak to more in depth of your work now and what you do, we would love to hear that and, you know, how about some of the clients that you have helped and how you help them. No, I'd love to. I never get tired of talking. Like I say, if you, if you don't make me go away, we'll be here um, 10 hours from now. Of course, I think my dog might have, have something to say with that. I think he wants to eat now. Yeah, I think he wants to eat. So I'll let you go. But thank you so, so much. Like I said, hopefully we'll have you back. Your story is amazing and stay strong. Thank you. Thank you, Sierra. Good luck to you with your podcast. And so thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host. Sierra Cobb. Take care.